I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity, auth, versioning, and more. All right. In this episode, we are speaking with Sophie Retard from Euler Hermes. Sophie, thanks for joining us. And I also have my uh, co-host here, Adam Duvander. Sophie has done a bunch of different stuff at Euler Hermes, European uh, insurance company, but namely around kind of recently identity, access management, all kinds of API things. Seems like quite a journey that I definitely want to hear more about. But I guess Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself and then Sophie the same. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Adam Duvander and I work for Every Developer, and we work with API companies to engage developers. And Sophie, I know one of the things on your list is developer relations, so I'm excited to be able to dig into what that looks like at a large insurance company and all the other things that you're working on. So excited to have you here. Okay, thank you so much for having me. So yes, as you said, I worked on a couple of things. Uh, it's been like 17 years or so that I am part of this company and it's still making fun, which is great. Currently, I'm in charge of document management, uh, identity nexus management and API developer relations and API governance. And it may sound like a big mix up of things that don't go together, but in fact, it's all API based because everything we do is microservices. So it's all APIs that we build. So some are part of the document area. Some are the, the backbone of our IT infrastructure because it's the authorizations for our APIs that we do. Then we expose them on the developer portal that we have built. And that's where it comes all together. Yeah, actually, I was telling Adam before uh, you got on that I noticed identity management. I was like, yes, fine. Like, this is the thing that I see happen a lot is when you get into API governance, you naturally end up kind of taking over the identity piece because it's such a fundamental part. So I'm curious in your case, how did that kind of progression happen of looking at the governance function and then you, know, you find yourself looking at this whole identity space? Good question. How did this happen? It was sort of organically developing in that when I was working in Paris, in France, I'm now back in Germany, but still um, working for the group. So yeah, I started off with our project SmartLink, which is an API that we expose to our customers. It used to be a SOAP API, so it dates a bit, but it was quite a success. So it was really nice to, to be able to, to really connect our customers and partners directly with their ERP systems, their SAPs and, and the likes, and have a really a seamless process between us and them. Projects come and you're there and uh, you grab the opportunity <laughs> and then, then you grow. And um, yeah, that's always been the, the way. And, and so I came to user management First of all, in, in a sort of legacy way, uh, where we had a classic solution that manages all the rights and profiles for the users that would then write into a GAT pretty classically. And then beginning last year, I did this step going from operations into IT for the first time to become manager of IT developers, which I am not. It was a lot of learning involved. And then there was this other identity management team that was just 
pretty fresh, a year old or so, that needed someone to take in charge. And that, that happened to be me. Because, as you say, it's, it's pretty close to, to have this central piece that organizes all the authorizations for the APIs and have that close to the governance and all the other aspects that you have centrally on APIs and that you really need. I always feel like it's the key point of consistency that a lot of people take for granted when they say they're going to do an API platform and then underestimate what it will take to make identity management consistent across the organization. And I would add here, Sophie, it's obvious uh, from your story here that even though you don't know why you're there, the people around you must find you reliable and high-performing. That's the answer to my question, so that's great. I admit that I was also of the opinion back then that you would just need to put in place an API management like an APG or so. And then it's the magic solution and yay, but it happened to be a bit more complex. I think in cases where you're just externalizing an API and you're trying to kind of fake it for external sake, they can be useful. But it sounds like you're working a lot more on kind of the microservices side of things, kind of the internal piece and the external piece. And that's where you really kind of have to have it all come together, I guess. So I guess tell us a little bit about this kind of microservices transformation journey. I imagine it must be one. By the sounds of it, Euler Hermes has been around a long, long time. So I imagine this is probably shakes things up quite a bit. Yes, it was a journey to get there. Five years ago or so, we were still discussing SOA practice and operating an ESB that would expose all these features in different kinds of APIs. Yeah, I would say we were lucky to get the right CIO at the right time who helped us to change that and address it. Because even though the there was a lot of investment that had been done in these technologies, so it's difficult to drop it and say, okay, let's do something completely different. But he saw the need and enabled that. And that was really the, the unblocking of this journey and the, the beginning. And then there was a lot of learning in, in the entire organization. So not just in IT, but also in the related business organization that works together with IT to learn what are APIs, why do we need them and how do we build them? And even how do we build them then on cloud native solutions rather than our on-premise stuff that we were used to, to have. At the same time, we had to implement an agile organization and all the procedures that go with it. There's really a, a huge work. If you look back to then, it's, it's quite incredible. There's really not much left from, let's say, three years ago from the standards and, and technologies that we used to have. So you said that's about a five-year kind of transition? It's been ongoing since, let's say, three, four years, but it's still going on. So uh, I would say we need another five years or so to be able to say we have completed it. That's probably a reasonable timeline. I think as you shift into the DevOps culture, um, you just kind of learn that it's constant improvement and you're never really done. But in terms of like breaking up monoliths, perhaps, but I would also certainly caution that Everybody ends up with a kernel of the monolith that you really can't get rid of and just be okay with it. You're not doing anything terrible. But that's awesome to hear. What a story. 
I want to be honest, that's hard to imagine just five years ago still being deep in SOAP and USB stuff. It's been a long time for me, easily 10 years since I spent much time on that. So it's great to hear you guys have caught up. I'm curious on on that. You mentioned the CIO came in and kind of made it okay, but there must be <laughs> there must be more to that. You know, a company doesn't just jump and and switch to a microservices architecture. Or if they do, it's based on just sort of what the new trend is, and they're moving to whatever's next soon. So, what are the discussions like that lead to a big decision like that? At again, a company. I'm going to guess where <laughs> big decisions are not made lightly. Yes, I mean we used to have decision making where you you need to create a huge business case with all the planning and and really in detail and financial details, and we still do that, of course, but in a much lightweight version, one which is much more appropriate to the fact that things are moving fast and you can take a year to prepare something because one year later it might be outdated. And so you need somebody who is able to sell that message to the board and to the investors and tell them this is not just fancy stuff and we're not talking about things we'd like to create in IT because we like creating things in IT. It's really a business advantage that you create. So in terms of your time to market, it's skyrocketing. Your budgets for the maintenance are too high. Your products are not what your customers expect. And there's so many things that come together and you just don't solve that just by doing this, but you contribute to it completely. And, and if you're able then to, to consistently sell this message to your decision makers and then go on and sell this message to the staff and, and teach them what this is about and accompany them in uh, adhering to that. You need somebody who's capable of doing that. And that's why I think a lot that he was uh, really, really yeah, substantial to, to make this happen. You mentioned before that when you look back, you know, that kind of five years ago, how different everything is now. What are some practical ways in which that promise of, you know, let's go do this kind of API stuff, how has that come true in practical ways that you can see and that, that are, let's say, measurable? Like, what are the key things that stick out that have been valuable about that transformation? We have some concrete functional things that we have today for our customers that we could not do earlier. If you think about the performance of the engine that helps us search companies, I mean, we we have worldwide company data, there's millions and millions of companies that we know of, and that's part of our core business. And we, we just don't know them, but we, we also evaluate, evaluate their, their stability and all these masses of data. If you're just typing in a, in a sort of Google-like search field and you want to find that company on a global level, that was not possible before. And now it is possible. So that's a very, very obvious case that everybody understands. If you show this, if you present this, people immediately, immediately say, okay, we see that, we like that. And that's just one example, and there are so many of these functional enhancements, and we see that 
We now expose these in the customer portal. We get direct feedback from our customers and our brokers and our partners, and they are very happy to see these features happening today. Yeah. I love that you frame this in kind of the customer value side. I feel like all too often when you get into the microservices thing, it turns into this, how can we make things more cost efficient? And then you get stuck there. But that anybody who's been through that recognizes if you didn't take that next step to kind of externalize this value, then you really haven't begun to realize the growth potential that it can trigger. And I guess it probably would have been good for us to open on a little bit about what Euler Hermes does. That would be helpful. Adam and I did a little homework. But maybe tell us just kind of the quick snapshot about what kind of insurance business Euler, Euler Hermes is in so we can understand you know, why like this sort of company tracking information is so important. So our main business is the credit insurance. We also do guarantees and some specialty insurance things. I would say 80% is credit insurance. And that means if you have a company and you sell goods to another company, which might happen to be in another country, and you don't know them already, but they are knocking at your door and they want to purchase things for, let's say, a million euro, and you say, great, yes, I have a new customer. Then you have the risk, of course, that you send your goods that are worth a million to that company and then you send the invoice, but it's never being paid because before it arrives, the company has made, filed for bankruptcy and, and your money is gone. So that's basically the case which we insure. So in this little example, you would, before you deliver, before you accept the order, you would request Euloherms uh, to cover a certain amount of business. Let's say you need a million of, of, of coverage. So you would request it to us. You would then, during the request, identify that company and say, okay, I have this precise company and it needs to be precise to be legally effective. And then you say, yeah, that's the amount of coverage. And then we say, yes, we know them. It's all clear. And here, here you have the coverage and that's fine. And then you, you do business with that company as long as you like in this sort of accepted coverage. And if then still something goes wrong because uh, their solidity can change, there can be unexpected events and they still go bankrupt, that's a shame. But then we would pay your invoice, basically. So that makes a lot of sense why understanding kind of the composition of these companies is so important to understanding how to value that insurance. The other bit that in, that's interesting here is you said that you know there's there's customer functionality that you have that you didn't before. Is that because you've been able to kind of deliver faster or is that because you've begun to look at customer needs and kind of connectivity differently? Different causes. The first one is performance. I mean our old monolith system was built back then and when we built it it was a great technology and everything but then at some point in time you got stuck with that technology and you get stuck with those limitations and we had that for example and then a second element is of course to do this business you need to add a lot of information and information you get via partners and, and different sources and implementing new sources also happen to be big projects 
because it was not completely API driven as it is today. So the time you take to add all this information in order to improve your quality and at the same time, the limitation of your, your own performance, that's where it was just not possible to provide what we provide quite naturally today. So it sounds like the data acquisition piece from your partners is in some ways one of the more accelerating pieces of this, as opposed to like, I mean, granted, there's probably new functionality for the customers, but if you didn't, if you weren't able to quickly acquire new data from these partners, then that wouldn't have been possible. Is that right? Yes, it's part of that. Then it's also an event-driven architecture. So today it's possible in the moment where we get a new information, which is brand new, then we can trigger an event that immediately updates the evaluations of all concerned companies about this information. And then we can communicate to our customers who are in a relation with that specific company and say, okay, there happens to be a change and maybe that's a negative change. So you need to be careful with your deliveries, maybe. Got it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Good, Adam. I was uh, curious on the exposure of the APIs outside of the company to those partners and how you go about letting them know that there's a new interface to use or who those partners are that integrate directly with the API. Essentially, I would say, or the majority of our users are customers, big companies that have a lot of own customers and they want to insure them all individually. And that's why they want to automate. We have a team of experts that can provide a second level support. But of course, we have the developer portal where these features are available. So they just can uh, create themselves an account on the portal. They discover the APIs and then they can go use them pretty quickly. So we try, of course, constantly to improve this and make it even easier. So we are still a bit in the in an earlier stage, I would say, on a dev portal. But the first feedback is quite encouraging. And then, yes, we have still the expert team that they can contact if ever they have a question or if ever something is not going as they expected. And so we can have a direct face-to-face -face contact to support it. I guess turning back the clock again, I'm, for me, the, the whole kind of, how did we get the ball rolling? How did we get there? I think for a lot of people is where they're maybe stuck. Is like, we know we need to go do this or we've started it and maybe it's not going so well and we need to pivot a little bit. I know a, a hot topic is always, should we have one team that leads all this or should we have it all decentralized because centralizing things is slow and like how did you guys kind of approach this it sounds like you've kind of been at the the center of all this from the beginning and how has that evolved over this kind of five-year-ish period that's a good question i used to be or i used to pilot a centralized team in 2012 when we started the smartlink journey but we were limited to a certain functional scope, which was quite specific to what our customers typically need most. And if you look at the total need, if you go full microservices, that's just a small fraction. And we would have been completely unable to deliver all the API design and everything for everybody. It's just not making any sense. So we have uh, redone the team then we have changed it from 
executing and creating designs to being a pure governance team that would be coaching the other teams and also validating their merger requests on GitLab. So we have created a design guide that everybody should adhere to. We were constantly, of course, improving this, challenging it with the needs of our internal projects to make it even better. Then as you automate the deployment process, which in any case you'd want to do, then you can pretty easily integrate these things into this automatic chain. So you make sure you have the validation step and then you have the deployment of the portal step and all these things. And that's something I, yes, I can definitely recommend because you need to decentralize for capacity reasons. And then again, you should not decentralize completely because then you get all kinds of designs, which might be all good, but they don't go together. And, and if you want to expose this to your customer, uh, you want to have one consistent design philosophy that he can align, rely on and not a creative chaos. And it sounds like the, the style guide is part of that, part of how you're able to keep that consistency, but also be decentralized. Can you give us a, a taste of some of the stuff that is in that, like what types of things? We originally got quite inspired from, from what PayPal released on the web. So we didn't want to start from scratch and they had something very, very, very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually my work at PayPal to push to get that released. So. Oh, really? <laughs> like, Yay. Nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, I'm super glad to see it's become a pattern. As a basis, you need something. And this was so, so helpful for us. And then, yeah, you define how you do a pagination. You define how to, to do versioning. You define how you would name your resources. All these tiny little details, but there are many of them. And that's why you need to write it down. And as you have always a lot of changes in your stuff, because there are new projects starting or others stopping and, and so on, you need to document it and have a reference where everybody can come anytime to discover how it should look like. So the argument that you know you tend to see is, okay, great, you wrote down all these rules, and I'm sure you're starting from, say, PayPal's external style guide got bigger, right? Because the internal rules are usually more complicated. By the way, the internal version of that at PayPal was much, much bigger. That was like a public extract that we shared. Now you got to, you mentioned earlier, you're doing like reviews on these APIs as they come through. I certainly have many years of experience of how painful that can be and how you become the organizational bottleneck. Have you done any sort of automation to make that process kind of more efficient for your own team as well as not be the bottleneck? We were looking into linters and I think we go on looking. We don't have them operational yet because what we have seen so far was too limited in order to completely automate. But I think it's still one of the open points that we should go on trying to integrate into the workflow to make it more efficient because they, they can do a level one validation and then you manually do, do just a level two or so. So what does level one and level two mean to you? I assume there's some internal notion of what that means. Well, for me, level one would be the purely 
technical things like is your resource written in camel case or, or whatever conventions yeah basic things then it can maybe also check if your resource name is already existing somewhere else if it, there's a conflict but what you don't what you cannot automate is how you name a resource we had a very nice discussion about a company as a resource so how do you name a company an api we were saying pretty simply it should be a company and then there were other people saying no it should be more generic because it could be a company or it could be an individual or it could be something so it should be called party and we were like hmm, okay but how need we do this to make it intuitive for our customers that's the, the the kind of discussions you have and that you cannot automate so you really need a team to do that and and they don't need just the technical expertise they need soft skills these coaching experience to work with the squads and have this open discussion and say okay you want to name this resource like that Put yourself in the shoes of your customers and tell us, will your customer understand what you mean? As I say a lot of times on the show here when we talk with folks, a good old healthy dose of old school product management and basic customer centricity usually gets the right answer. I would certainly encourage, Sophie, that what I've seen when you automate all those conventions and boring stuff and spend more of your time on that that level two that you said, this kind of the naming, the rationalization, it's so worth it. <laughs> At PayPal, we did something along the same lines and we got some kind of automation going for doing the basic checks. And it was like my week went from reviews from sunup to sundown to having real discussions with people. So I think that kind of linting piece seems like, oh, well, we're not getting it all done. But the truth is you can't automate the rest and you shouldn't because you wouldn't have that discussion about customers. And for me, that's what like, that's the meat and potatoes, you know, that's what matters. Back to kind of um, externalizing these APIs, it sounds like you kind of have two faces to this at least with kind of your customer facing piece and then the more sort of partner sort of sourced data kind of piece, which takes me all the way back to the start of our discussion on kind of the identity management piece. Is there one way that you're kind of doing that? Or is, like, in other words, is that kind of complexity what led you down the road of ultimately getting more involved in identity? I think the, the ultimate goal is that you can automate based on the identity that you have. So if your developer coming on your dev portal is identified as developing for one of your partners, and that partner has uh, sort of privileged access towards other partners, which can happen for any reason, then you can identify that on based on that profile, based on the link between the developer and your customer account. And then you can display the documentation that fits to this level of authority. It's something that remains, however, complex to do. I mean, we're doing it and uh, it's working but there's still discussion ongoing how we can make this easier to handle also discussions whether we should have just one swagger that we create and that we then 
sort of rework <laughs> or whether we should in fact have different swaggers according to the use cases that you hit. I think there's still a lot of learning that we have to make this really, really well. Yeah, I mean, I would say don't feel bad on the identity piece. I've never been anywhere or talked to anyone who says, oh yeah, we got all the identity and access management stuff totally handled and we're completely happy with how it works. It's totally unified, totally consistent, everybody loves it. That has never been said in the history of, of engineering. <laughs> I think on, you had mentioned kind of using Swagger and I have to like be the good guy here. I was part of the kind of founding group on OpenAPI, which went to Linux Foundation. So we call it OpenAPI now. No, it's okay. We see it all the time. So I, that's an interesting question is like, I mean, what's the kind of, give us a sense of the size of kind of the platform that you're working with in terms of number of APIs and this question of should we have one giant definition or should it break down? Are we talking 100 APIs or 10,000 or somewhere in between? I think we are maybe at roughly 70 APIs or so, but it's the number of endpoints that's much bigger and that's where we have concern. There's at least one API, which is the policy API, the insurance policy. It's incredibly powerful in terms of resources that it needs to manage. And that's actually where we ask ourselves the question, how do we cut this down to something that is really just exposing what our customer would use in the objective to make it easily understandable? Because I would say the way it is today, it's not. We don't expose it yet um, for that reason. But that's then coming back to these uh, manual talks that you need to do, the, the manual discussions, where you sort of negotiate, where you challenge this API and say, okay, what can we cut? What can we downsize? What can we simplify to make it really something that makes ultimate sense to your end customer. You had mentioned kind of microservices. So presumably you have some notion of how you're kind of breaking that up. Is that through some kind of domain oriented kind of design or does that translate back into how those APIs get externalized? Kind of what are the, the ways that you create those boundaries? We did a first exercise quite some time ago to define business capabilities which is really completely business driven. And then within these, you look into it and you, you define how you would cut them into functional elements. What's an example of a business capability? Because I've, I've certainly used this tool and seen it used, but I feel like there's a million different ways that can be interpreted. So in your world, what's an example of some business capabilities? Well, let's say the identification of a company worldwide. That could be one capability. Then the assessment of a company worldwide in terms of their financial stability. And then you can have a discussion. Okay, is the legal information and additional information, is that part of the same capability or is that something else? And that's where you're, you need to really think about it and then you can design on that basis. Yeah, and I suppose in your world, policy is where maybe all those things get kind of all mush together a little bit to try to represent all the pieces that have that have come to fruition in the legal sense, right? Yeah, I mean, the policy defines what you sell to your customer if you're an insurance. So there's the legal terms that define which are the conditions under which 
there is a claim that we will pay, which are the necessary information that you need to provide us with, which are delays for that maybe. And then there's the invoicing part, which defines how do we invoice, on which event do we charge money and how much and so on. So it's really a lot, a lot, a lot of things that need to be respected. And that makes the, the final API very powerful, but not ideal to be exposed as a whole, I would say. I always call this like the Goldilocks problem, right? Like. It's a pretty classic problem in computer science, but we see it the most when it's time to expose APIs. Is like, is it too small? Is it too big? Is it just right? And it tends to get looked at in the microservice world a lot of internal, but when it goes time to externalize it, that's when you kind of learn when it's too big. So, like, are you learning that by way of this kind of developer relations, kind of community engagement side? And how do you get that input from developers outside back into the company as part of that discussion? Today, it's pretty much about the face-to-face -face meetings that we enable with our expert team. Of course, I would very much like to have some more direct channels on the portal, maybe more measurements in terms of what is really actually consumed and then dig into why that is and why others are not consumed. But there's a lot of improvements that we can still do there, I guess. I guess what, is, what does developer relations mean kind of in the way that you guys are conducting it? And this is something I should have asked first, right? I feel like everywhere has a different meaning of what developer relations is. You know, that could be, oh, we throw a hackathon twice a year, or that could be we write the docs or whatever. But what does that mean in how you guys are doing it? There's a lot of aspects because then you have also different developers that you want to relate with because you have those that are external to your company and which you would like to attract in using your APIs because we find it good that our compass would that our customers would connect through APIs rather than only using the uh, the portal which they can also do I mean that's fine but it's, it's very beneficial to automate the process. So our objective is to make this self-explaining as we can. So there's a lot of teaching, not only about the technical details, but also about the product. Because um, as you asked in the beginning, everybody doesn't know uh, what is credit insurance. I mean, I didn't learn this at school. It's, <laughs> it's sort of a special product and that you need to discover. And our developers, are frequently also externals for our customers so they don't know nothing about that and they might even not be very interested personally in that and still we need to explain them what that is and why the processes need to be implemented in a certain way using those apis so that's the, the functional documentation which is quite essential to do that and then, of course, there's the technical um, documentation. There's sandboxes that are easy to consume to, to directly go and test things. There's also a need then to have sort of pre-production tests if they have done everything. And then our customers would want to test that with actual live data before plugging this in, into production because it's very critical data. So you, you need to be careful. And all these things. So that's the, the 
sort of external developer relations. And then there's the internal ones, which are partly covered by the same need because our internal developers have the same need to discover the APIs that we have and get all the information easy. But then it goes further in terms of having the right technologies that they like to apply and that make sense to them, that give them also the possibility to still develop while working for us. It's uh, sharing best practices between developers in terms of how to apply those technologies, having the right meetups to do so, personal interactions, trainings. I mean, that goes very far. It goes up to the workstation that we provide actually to a developer, which is very different from a workstation that somebody in the business would require. And so we were looking into virtual workstation that allow you to work from anywhere. You have your personal devices that you can use. If you prefer to, to use a Mac, you don't have to use the, the company PC, for example. All these things are part of that. Oh, that's quite a scope. I think you hit on two key principles that I, I say a lot is one is developers try business buys, meaning in many cases, developers are integrating things that they're not signing the check for and that they're supplying the they're fulfilling requirements. And that if you can't explain it in business terms, what does this thing do, then you may not be selected in the process when they're looking around for it. And if it's hard to use, conversely, when the developers try it, they're going to tell the business people, I will not implement this thing, it's garbage. I think the other bit that I loved about what you said, the way I always phrase it is like, your first developer community is inside the company. And if you can't get that part right, you're not going to succeed externally. And I love how deep and comprehensively you're looking at it internally down to the level of what the workstation looks like. So it sounds like you've really got a deep scope inside the company, all the way from kind of DevOps and pre-prod deployment for customers on down to what's the workstation like? Are there any boundaries that you don't cross in there? It's not all my responsibility. It's more the general way that this company looks at these things. But I think that it's very essential and we emphasize a lot. And that's why also we do conferences and interviews like this, because we want to show the world how we care about our developer community. When I joined this company like 17 years ago, I did discover something completely different because then IT was just executing things that business was asking for. And this philosophy did not or doesn't work anymore because IT is an essential part of the insurance business. Insurance does not work without IT. And so it's not just the one orders, the other executes, it's collaboration to make this work right. And that's where, where it's really important to, to spread that message and also care about the, the application of this philosophy internally. So we coach business and IT on the right agile processes that enable this. Yeah. And you mentioned a team of experts that both internal and external developers can consult? Mm -hmm. The governance team, you mean? or Perhaps, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure who the team of experts is. <laughs> yeah. That's my question. Yeah. Well, we have an API governance team that would be more the design 
experts. Then we have a data governance team that looks really into the consistencies of, of how you treat your data on a corporate worldwide scope, of course. Then we also have a, a cloud expert team and they really know how to use properly the resources we get from AWS. They know the security stuff that you need to apply. They watch out for the consistent new services that you can use and they share this, this knowledge. They do a lot of FinOps also to help the teams rightly develop to make it cost efficient, which is important as well. They help solve if you have a real issue in your deployment and it's really not working and then you, they can jump in and, and help you solve the problem. So there's a couple of, of those expert teams that we have and the whole thing works then well together. So some places frame those kinds of teams as sort of a center of excellence. Others put it as more of like an enablement. Kind of what's the model and I guess ultimately what's the forcing function that teams around the company are, why are they engaging these teams of experts? What kind of draws them to water? First of all, they should attract the developer community by being good. That's the first thing. And second, and then of course you have all the IT managers that come together on a regular basis to discuss all open points and those teams are included to take the decisions that should possibly be taken top down. But essentially it's really, if you're providing something that people see as good, then they will be happy to consult you and work with you to learn from you. And that's what we try to, to put in place. Yeah, it seems like you kind of had the mix of the maybe somewhat of a CIO mandate on one side, but then on the other side, where you kind of, you started with this one kind of customer facing use case. Did you sort of build more of these kind of existence proofs to show bigger value and bring more people in over the course of that? Yes, we regularly communicate over the entire IT and, and organizations scope. So there's a regular meeting to show those successes and ensure that everybody is aware of what are the things currently going on. But then that's essentially in the beginning, you need to do that to create sort of buy-in of everybody. Once this organization is actually working, people get used to it and just apply it. Yeah, success is addictive. When I hear companies say, well, you know, we've started down this road because we got the Jeff Bezos style mandate from our CTO or whatever, everyone should do APIs. And I'm like, be careful. <laughs> There's a lot more to it, right? You can't just say it and will it into existence. I agree. Like when you see building success stories and everyone goes, I want to do that because what we're doing isn't that good, then you don't have, I, I think people hear governance and think, oh, great, the rule makers who are going to block me. But if you've done it the right way and you're showing it's successful, it's faster, it's better value for a customer. Everyone wants to be like that and just steps to it. So I love that. Man, we covered a lot of ground, Sophie. Um, I guess I'm curious if I'm uh, in a, say, small to medium-sized company or, and I guess you're sort of 6,000 people-ish was what I read online. So let's say maybe smaller than that, 
thinking about, wow, this all sounds too big, too complicated. If you had to kind of step into a smaller organization, what would you say that you got to start here or you have to do this thing? It doesn't matter how big it is. This is always true. I think you need to, first of all, design your target's architecture that you want to achieve. Ideally, put a deadline for that, which is realistic and share that with everybody and, and invest a lot of teaching of communicating around that so that it's understood that this is a target. And then you need to start small and prove that this is a target that makes sense to achieve. And so you would pick what is the most visible success that you can create. And maybe you just start with one API and you create that. And once you have uh, succeeded, which I hope you will, then you show this widely again and show, okay, we used to be there. Now we have created this piece of our target architecture that brings us this and this and this benefit. And now that we have done this, we take the next step and take a second API and we try to repeat that success. And over time, we, we go on as uh, fast as we can, of course, with the limited resources that we probably have. Yeah, I love it. Have a vision for the future. Take it a step at a time. Wise words. Before we wrap here, anything that maybe for Euler Hermes folks who might not necessarily inside the company, but developers using Euler Hermes APIs, anything that you kind of want to share, news updates or encouragements? Just to say we are aware that we are still on a sort of early level in terms of REST APIs that we expose. And uh, we like to learn on your actual experiences that we do with our API. So please drop us a mail, a feedback. And even if you say it's crap, just tell us and <laughs> tell us why, ideally, so that we can improve on that. Because this all is a learning experience. The more we get feedback, the better we can make it. And not just for you, not just for us, but also for you as our customers and partners. I love it. Well, I can say, um, having done this kind of stuff for a long time, I think you're on the right track. And I would certainly love to hear a couple of years down the road how this all plays out and see you in a super confident position about where you're at. Adam, thanks for helping along with the discussion here again. Yeah, thanks, Sophie. It was inspiring. Absolutely. Thank you. Time's flying. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll uh, see you in the next one. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.